There was a time love was blind and the world was a song. And the song was exciting. There was a time. Then it all went wrong. This is the, um, you're listening to um, a special series on the state of the singularity with uh, Professor Nicholas Dungey from the Dungey State Podcast, uh, Professor, uh, uh, and James Blaha, of course. Um, professor, we're so happy you could join us. Uh, we, I am uh, terrified of this conversation because of how much we sort of been like listening to your podcast and how... Um, you know, he's just—we can't wait. We can't wait for this conversation. But just know that it, we're, I'm, I'm, my voice is a little shaky because it's this is a big deal to me. <laughs> You're very so funny, Chris. Well, it it is it is truly an honor um, to to be here to participate. Um, if if anybody should be terrified, it, it's me. Um, my students will, will will die of laughter when they hear that this really actually took place because they know um, how ignorant I am when it comes to, to general technology. I have a good grasp of philosophy and technology, um, but but they're going to have a good laugh. You know, that's the funny thing because this is exactly what we need uh, in the technology and the virtual reality community slash industry. It's voices like yours. Mm. Never in a million years people would have thought that would end up being involved in the planning and creation of this medium. Like, um, now more than ever, voices like yours are uh, more important. Like, because wow. um, what's happening in, in, the, in the, 
here's the thing. Here's the, 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 the thinking behind it is that, you know, and James, feel free to add or subtract from my theory, but the thinking is this medium is quite small still. And it's kind of like uh, yelling in, in, in a stadium full of people. Uh, right now, the stadium is, is half full. Um, and, and whenever you shout, your echoes were, will reverberate and people will capture that. I, I think that that stadium is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and it's going to be harder and harder as time goes on to sort of project your message. Um, and so it's important to start early and I'm really glad that you're able to join us and, and add your uh, perspective. Well, like I said, I'm, I'm honored. And one of the challenges that confront not just the emerging field of virtual reality, but the broader field of the explosion in information technology is that what I do, political philosophy, which used to be philosophy before it changed um, in the early 1900s into analytical philosophy, what I actually do doesn't exist anymore. And it's been squeezed out by the emergence of political science, that the normative social sciences with their emphasis on quantitative methodology and statistical analysis on the one hand, and the emergence of academic philosophy in the United States and England, which is largely analytic, which is sort of logical positivism, sort of theories of, of analytic theories of language. And both of those perspectives, the, the normative social sciences and analytical philosophy in the United States and England, neither one of those disciplines are very well situated to speak at a deep philosophical and sort of existential and human sense and a social sense about the relationship between the human and technology and, and what different sort of broad philosophical paradigms, modern and especially postmodern, have to, to say about the emergence of technology and also its consequences and also to suggest where it might be going. So there, it, there's a, there's, it, it's not just that the, the community is small. There aren't really intellectual uh, voices that are, are situated to have this conversation in, in, in what we think of as, as sort of social and political in, in ways, in ways that relate to consciousness and ethics um, and, and, and the political dimensions of all of this. Oh, I was just going to say that it, you know, it's, it's interesting because we've, we, in the tech community here in San Francisco, you know, I've ended up in um, rooms where some of the people um, working on these things really want to sort of talk about the, the philosophical side of things, or, or at least um, sort of discuss why it is we're doing what we're doing and where the direction should be going. Um, and there, there's this sort of um, current uh, feeling where most of the people just do not want to have that conversation. Oh. Um, you know, I, I think people tend to focus on, you know, how are we going to make money um, yeah. or how are we going to build this interesting technology? And yeah. there's very little discussion of, um, you know, if we're sort of designing the, the, the future of how people are going to be interacting with things, 
what sort of responsibilities we have when we're doing that. Um, it, it's sort of not, it, I, I always get the impression that people feel like it's almost silly to discuss yeah. some of the time. Well, well, some of that might be a byproduct of, of sort of modern liberal political philosophy, which sort of is grounded itself in, in a deep sense of freedom and ownership in one's consumption of property in terms of the ownership of one's mind and one's body. And most importantly, one of the most powerful ideas that emerge in modern political philosophy beginning as early as back in the 1500s, but which has now become dominant in a modern liberal technological paradigm is precisely this idea that what the human does is use reason and especially reason guided under the scientific paradigm, the, the sort of the observation of nature, the accumulation of data, and then, and then the rational mastery of that information to set upon the natural world through the creation of technology, to master the natural world, to emancipate human suffering from it. And, and what it does is it, it creates, it, it sees technology ultimately as a, a very sophisticated tool of power that either makes one wealthy, which is, of course, makes sense given the combination of liberal capitalism as it emerges in the last 200 years, or in a sense that, gee, what can we do with this technology? What can we do with these capacities? And in, and in fact, the, the certain dimensions of, of modern liberal philosophy with its association uh, with capitalism create a notion of technology and and how people relate to technology and then how technology is used to to relate to the natural world and other human beings uh, is is on the way to creating quite a crisis actually what does this crisis look like can you can you expand a bit more on that yeah the the, the crisis looks like an extraordinary alienation, I think. Um, in first, an alienation from the modern liberal human being from his or herself, which is fascinating because, as I was suggesting, the, the emergence of the first two waves of the scientific revolution that take place as early as the 1500s, builds in the 1600s, explodes in the 1700s, and now it's, it's almost perfected itself. And like I said, when that was first emerging, the, the modern liberal conception of mind and the human viewed viewed mind as property and, and physical strength, as body as property, and, and it viewed the uh, sort of use of those things to create products, in this sense, technology, tools, whatever you might want to think about, I, you know, intellectual property, physical property, and, and then it, it, it sort of thought it thought the modern person thought that he or she was in command or in control of the things it created. Right, technology as a type of aesthetic experience or a or a, a tool that is produced, and and yet what is happening is first that has become so sophisticated that project and it's become so powerful um, that now that there's a there's a kind of a fundamental alienation between the human and its own creation. This is this is first and foremost an extraordinary crisis, and it's causing all sorts of problems in the interhuman relationship or intrahuman relationship and the human relationship with the environment, right? Because technology has been seen as a tool to master and exploit the environment 
for wealth or, or for human safety, for human power. Um, so that's, that's the first extraordinary form of alienation, it, the, that the, the creators of the technology will find themselves alienated from their own tools, right? And which, in a way, will ultimately alienate them from their own mind and their own conceptions of value. Uh, and then the second form of alienation is going to occur uh, a sort of politically, in, in a political sense, where, and you're already seeing that economically and politically, you're, you're, you're seeing the bifurcation of the human species in terms of a very small group of people who command extraordinary wealth and technological sophistication, and, and they are starting to live lives that are fundamentally different and alienated from the other 6.9 billion, 6.9.5 billion people that live on planet Earth. So, so the, the, the modern liberal philosophical conception of the free, rational, rights-bearing person who owns property in his or her mind and body organizes that mind and that body in terms of, uh, in terms of a scientific perspective on things, creates this technology to master its own life and its surroundings will end up creating this extraordinary alienation within the self and amongst other people. We're seeing that right now. James, any questions before I jump in? Yeah, yeah that, that, that's um, talking a little bit about that small, small group of people who have sort of, um, it seems like sort of the, the history of, uh, of this stuff has been that as the power of technology increases, the power of, uh, the, the top potential power of an individual increases. Um, and so we've seen that health is going up. I'm having so like some trouble with the audio. Health of each person is going up, but... James, we're having issues uh, hearing your, your audio. It's getting a little bit cut off. Okay, should I just speak a little louder? Uh, yeah. Is this better? Closer to your router. Uh, there you go. There you go. Much better. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I guess what what I was talking about is um, basically it seems like as the power of technology increases, the power of each or the, the top potential power of individuals increase. Um, so it used to be that kings and princes and you know very powerful people in the past were sort of limited in their total um, power over other people by the technology they had. So we've seen smaller groups of people have more and more and more influence over um, other people. Um, so it seems like power is sort of centralizing in that way, even as you know standards of living and, and sort of individual power is increasing on average. Um, and so in, in the context of automation, it, you know, it yeah. seems like a small number of people are going to own a large yeah. amount of, of the means of production, um, and they're not going to have you know, a need for people as property anymore. You know, they're not going to need yep. to have other people using their Produce minds or things. their bodies. Yep. That's right. So sort of what does that transition look like and, <sighs> and what, what do we do to prepare for it, I guess? Can I go on a small rant? Please do. Yeah, because there are two questions here and, and they're, they're extraordinarily important. They have a historical origin and resonance and they're and they're leading to some some very very profound challenges for humanity. And some of this we spoke about yesterday, Chris, when we were talking. The first question, James, is your observation is 
absolutely spot on about the way in which the the organization and control of technology has benefited in terms of the acquisition of raw power and wealth a very small and and sort of limited number of human beings and and the most extraordinary thing to know about that it not, not only is your observation correct but the most powerful and penetrating thing to know about the observation especially as it relates to what we now think of sort of the modern liberal social welfare democracies is that that process, despite the fact, as you said beautifully, James, that a byproduct of that process has produced a higher standard of living for more people across the last 300 years of its unfolding. And in some ways, you have seen the emergence of what we call the liberal social welfare democracies. Despite both of those things as byproducts of a particular movement of that process, which, by the way, is now coming to an end, and that was your second observation, the original observation was purposeful. One of one of the most important people, I talk about this all the time in, in the podcast that we do, and we, we talk about Machiavelli. And, and Machiavelli had emerged in the early 1500s, 1520, 1525, and he wrote one of the most famous or infamous books in the history of, of politics uh, and Western civilization called The Prince, and it's only 106 pages long, and, and it changes world history. And, and one of the things that Machiavelli said, he, he wrote the book for Lorenzo de' Medici. In fact, the book was never meant to be read by people like you and I. In fact, Machiavelli called average people vulgar. <laughs> it was, and, and then this book, this very powerful book, and I only want to talk to, about it in the context of what James had brought up. This extraordinarily powerful book says, says one thing. He says, Machiavelli is, is talking to, to Lorenzo de' Medici, and he's saying, look, God is dead. The world is anarchic. There is no inherent meaning or purpose to the cosmos, right? And by the way, this is where the modern international relations theory of anarchism comes, right? Realism built on anarche, the, a sort of a world without, arche is Greek for principle, and you put on the negative an, it, it sort of means no principle. And, and this is the origin of this idea. And Machiavelli said, look, the, the, the cosmos is anarchic, right? And, and in order to get some control over the world and other human beings, you're going to have to, to acquire an extraordinary amount of power, and you have to exercise this power. And the most powerful tool for doing that is what Machiavelli called science. He said, Machiavelli said, in order to control the world and to control people, right, you need science, you need technology. And, and what we're now seeing in, in, this, in this massive you know, information technology, data gathering technology, this is, this is the technological culmination of what Machiavelli whispered into Lorenzo Medici's ears uh, almost 600 years ago. Now, I'm sorry to, to make this too long, but to get to your point, what, what happened was Machiavelli was speaking to Lorenzo de' Medici. He was speaking to a, a sort of a European aristocracy. He was speaking to a handful of people that show up on the world stage, right, and, and do these extraordinary things, amass this great power, exercise this power through the, the, the creation and the manipulation and the expression of technology. Now, what happens is this really fascinating thing. Uh, an, an English philosopher named Thomas Hobbes comes, comes along about 130 years later in the 1650s. And, and Hobbes is the sort of the first 
thinker that that democratizes some of Machiavelli's insights. And, and Hobbes is one of the first thinkers that creates this idea that legitimate political authority only comes through the consent of the governed. And so there's a kind of an egalitarian, democratic, social contract theme in Hobbes. And then this is developed later in Locke. And then, of course, it's, it's, it's codified, if you will, in the U.S. Constitution with the, with the founders. Now, the, really, the dark secret about all of this the dark, dark secret, and this is critical to what you were just talking about, James, is that throughout the evolution of modern modern political philosophy and then modern liberal political philosophy, there, there's this idea that somehow democracy emerges, uh, consent emerges, the, the voice of the average person becomes more important, that sort of stuff. On the one hand, that's true. But if you read modern liberal political philosophy closely, and if you read what Hobbes and Locke said, Hobbes and Locke said, look, all people are created equal, that is true, and all legitimate government derived from consent of the governed, that is true. But both Hobbes and Locke recognized that that people are fu- fundamentally unequal in terms of their ambition, their natural talents, their intellectual abilities. And both Hobbes and Locke said what those people are going to do, what those extraordinarily ambitious, extraordinarily intellectually active people are going to do is, is they're going to use their reason. They're going to use their energy, and, 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 and especially in terms of technology. I mean, what, what Locke ultimately called property and what we would now call this sort of the technological sort of enveloping of the not just a notion of, of property and body but property in, on the in the globe and what what Hobbes and Locke said is these extraordinary people right even though they need the consent of the masses right and because because the, the political space is created through the consent of the masses and it's, it's the political space that makes possible their technological you know uh, their 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 ambitions or you know there would be no Google Google if there wasn't a political space that was secured by consent there'd be no Facebook if there if there wasn't a political space secured right so so on the one hand these these very these very arist what I call a new modern technological and informational technological elite, what they have always understood is that the, the creation of the political space is necessary. And to create that space, you need people to, to kind of consent. You need the masses. You need something like liberal democracy. But at the same time, the public space, the political space is used to amass extraordinary amounts of, of power of economic power and technological power and the purpose of all of this that this is the dark this is the dark reading of the entire history of modern liberal political philosophy modern ultimately the, the logic of modern liberal political philosophy doesn't doesn't end as marxism thought in in egalitarianism right it ends in this this massive accumulation of wealth and power in the hands of fewer and fewer and fewer people in fact, that was kind of the secret goal of the entire game. How can this centralization of power cohabit with uh, our demo- democratic ideals in the same world? You know, as yeah. Amazon? Well, this brings us to James's second observation slash question, and this is now what's happening, right? And 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 we've we've talked about this in some podcasts in the past. One of the great crises 
of in the United States, and you're seeing this in Western Europe, and you're seeing this in the United States, is that what we are seeing right now in this extraordinary gap between of wealth between the, the, the very, very, very wealthy 1% and, and everybody else, and not just that gap, but the collapsing uh, living standards of most people in the, in the industrial and post-industrial liberal West, what, what we're seeing is, is that is not the product of something that has gone wrong, right? Oftentimes, you, you know, people who, who live in the liberal social democracies of the West, they like to say, well, well, the economic system is unfair. You've got this accumulation of wealth by these very powerful people, and, and you've got these collapsing standards of living by everybody else. And, and, that, and that's a sign that, that some bad apples in Goldman Sachs or some bad apples, you know, in corporate America have, have some sort of rigged the system, right? They've, they've rigged the economic system. And in fact, that's not correct, actually. This, this, what we see right now is is an expression is a is a, a demonstration that the system has worked properly right and this is what james was talking about earlier the system was originally set up beginning in the 1500s moving all the way through the founding fathers and now finding perfection the system was set up for a handful of extraordinarily intelligent ambitious powerful people to acquire power now in terms of wealth and technology and to amass it Right, and so, so this, so what we are seeing is actually the logical conclusion of liberal capitalism as it as it was put into operation in the 1500s, and as it developed in the 16, 17, and 1800s. Now, now, to to your question, Chris, and and this is this is James's second question, and and James was quite right to suggest that for for a certain kind of historical time and space. What these extraordinarily in, intelligent and ambitious people did, these in, these intellectual elites, the and, and now these technological and these scientific and these informational t- elites, the people that you guys hang out with in in Silicon Valley up up there in the Bay Area, what they their ambitions were were not were were kind of compatible with. The vulgar. They were kind of compatible with everybody else, you know, because as industrialization emerged, and, and you think about all of this is happening during the 1600s and the 1700s and the 1800s. This is the time of European expansion, and so you literally have, you know, the 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 the, the physical expansion upon the globe of European powers taking land, you know, creating colonies, extracting resources, right? And then, of course, America is a perfect example of this. You had you you know. From from a certain point of view, you had a whole continent of land that was uninhabited, except tragically that there were people that were happened to be here, of course, and 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 so so all of this was sort of compatible with the masses, and in some ways the masses were useful because they're the ones that for a long time worked in the factories, they're the ones that 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 dug the coal, they're the ones that did the farming, they were the ones that that and and, and if you wanted to militarize this, these are also the ones that fought the wars, right, for colonization and imperial expansion. Now, now what's happened is is what we're seeing in Europe and the United States as the middle class collapses, right, in the perfection of capitalism, right? And this is what James was talking about earlier. We are now seeing that that the masses are no longer needed. You don't need steel workers anymore. Soon you're not going to need bus drivers. Um, as I was joking with you last night, Chris, I, I, soon I will be obsolete. There, professors like me have a 20-year life shelf right now. That's it. Uh, in 20 years, there will be Professor Alexa, 
right, sitting in the classroom. And, 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 and by the way, not only will there be Professor Alexa, but all the students all over the world will have your VR headsets on. They will have the VR headsets you guys have designed. And, and the learning process, whatever is being taught, um, is going to be take, taking place instantaneous in multi-dimensions all around the globe. And, and you're not going to need physical universities. You're not going to need physical professors anymore or bus drivers uh, and and what james was talking about earlier is that now now there's a sort of crisis emerging right because now you've got to figure out what you're going to do with these people and and one of the things i talk about with my students is is the the the, the really profound crisis that's coming is two of them one is the economic crisis as, as I told you yesterday, um, conservatively, they are estimating right now that in by 2025, and that's what, the seven, eight years from now, just this, this is say by 2030, just to be, you know, conservative about it, not to panic people. But by 2030, uh, roughly 40% of adults, uh, and male adults, especially 18 to 54, will be unemployed, completely unemployed. And the other working age adults will be uh, systemically unemployed, which means that they'll have a little labor, they'll have some employment, then there'll be large spans of unemployment, right? So we're we're looking at we're 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 looking at a fundamental displacement of an extraordinary large amount of human beings. Who and, and so that's just that's the first crisis. Like, but but the really deeper crisis, especially for liberal political philosophy and liberal social democratic societies, is that. For better or for worse, one of the primary ways that modern liberal human beings derive their sense of value, right, is from the uh, either identification of the power of the property in their mind or their body and the selling of that in the marketplace called labor, right? And, and, and one of the primary ways that human beings, especially in Europe and especially in the United States, get value is, is I'm not talking about moral value. I'm not talking about the moral values you have in your soul about what you think God is or God isn't. I'm talking about value understood in the marketplace, Right. And one of the primary ways people understand their worth in this society, their value is by their wages. Right. And, 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 and in fact, in fact, one of the one of the most powerful and it will turn out to be dangerous things that was ever said in the history of political philosophy was said by Thomas Hobbes in the 1650s. And Hobbes had said he he he, he had sort of rejected the, the classical Greek and the Christian conception of happiness. And, and Hobbes had said that happiness isn't a sort of contentment of mind. It's not a peace of mind that one derives from knowing one has lived well. It's not contentment based on the acquisition of moral virtue. Hobbes said that was all baloney, right? And Hobbes said happiness is not contentment of mind. He says, he says happiness is the ongoing and unending pursuit of one, one, one desire after another. So, so happiness is the acquisition of pleasure, Right. And the more that and by the way, this is this philosophy was necessary for the emergence of global capitalism. Right. Because happiness now becomes a constant unending pursuit of one pleasure after another. So happiness is feeling good and, and, and then constantly trying to, to keep feeling good, you know, um, and, and 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 so so happiness is feeling good. And what do you need to 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 feel 
good more? What do you need to feel pleasure more? Well, you need power and especially you need a specific type of power called wealth because then you can consume things, right? Now, now the more wealth you have, the greater your value was, the greater your sense of self-esteem. And what's happening culturally now is there's a collapse of that valuation, right? This, this is, and by the way, this is what led to the, the election of Donald Trump, right? You, you, have, you have probably 100 million people in the United States who have now for the eight years been watching their existential value in the marketplace collapse and collapse and collapse and collapse, right? And that has created this extraordinary sense of fear and anxiety, right? And that's, and that's creating political crisis. But the, the biggest crisis that's coming is psychological. When people are going to wake up and they're going to realize they're not worth anything anymore. Now, you know, and, and again, so a lot of this is caught up in some very deep and tragic perspectives about who we are and who other people are on the globe. Because, you know, from the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and 90s, when the middle class was expanding and growing and, 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 and people were valued in an economic and consumptive way in the United States, very high rates, right? You could, in the 1960s and 1970s, you could walk out of high school in western Pennsylvania and get a job at a coal mine. It wasn't the most glorious job, but it paid a middle class wage and you could raise a family and put some kids to college, maybe retire, right? And so there was this inflated sense of what labor did, right? And, and, and that was okay. And, and, and the, the fact that people in other parts of the world did that for a dollar a month or for $12 a year, that was just kind of another person's problem. But now that problem has come back to the United States and the collapsing of wages and everything except the tech industry. And so, so this is going to be an extra- I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh yeah, sort sort of as a as a preview of what that maybe looks like. Um, I'm from from Michigan, um, and so we've seen you know over the last thirty years in in Michigan, um, sort of the working class and middle class um, jobs sort of just disappear. Yep. Um, and and, and you know, with I, it the I have value. A lot of engineers in my family, and so all the engineering stayed, all the financing uh, financing stuff stayed. Right. Um, right. You know, all the corporate stuff stayed. Um, so there was this really clear cutoff that, you know, uh, above a certain uh, wage, you know, all that infrastructure is still there. And so in, in Detroit now, you have some of the richest neighborhoods in the country um, next to neighborhoods that yeah. are, are being, you know, sort of evacuated, you know, where, where people, you know, the, the police department shuts down, the water shuts yep. down, the schools shut down, yeah. um, and everyone just has to leave you know yeah. um, and so it, the solution was to go other places you know i moved to california <laughs> right uh, right and well because you were able to solution, move to california so. well that's because you were able to move to california mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and 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 again i i i, I just want to sort of circle back on this because it, it is it is really a critical point and and i don't want to bore anybody with it but but the point that you just made, James, is is directly related to the broader theme that we've just accidentally started talking about for, for the better parts of this show. Those who acquire and master what Machiavelli called 
technology. And he meant that in the broadest sense. He, he meant that in, in technology in the sense of modern economics. So you mentioned finance. He meant, he, he meant technology in the, in the sort of the mastering of a modern emerging bureaucracies as, as departments, specialty departments that administer certain elements of government affairs. He meant technology in the hard sciences and the engineerings, right, and the computer programming. He, he meant it all, right? And, and by the way, he, he was speaking to Lorenzo de Medici in the 1513, and this is what he's talking about, right? And now we have seen that process unfold in this extraordinarily powerful way and is now finding perfection in exactly your description of Michigan and Detroit, Michigan. And, the, and, 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 and again, we've got to think about technology in a broader sense. Those who have mastered economics and finance, those who have mastered a certain sort of engineering, those who have mastered literally what we now call technology in terms of information programming and coding and building software, those knowledges are the critical knowledges. And, and, and while, while the West emerged, while the middle class and the, and the, and the peasants from the feudal ages became the middle class and the working class for 400 years, while that was compatible for a while with the unfolding of the liberal West, that project is now over, right? And, and, and it's, it's going to create a, a really severe economic problem. One of the questions, so there's a video on, out on YouTube that I think everyone on planet Earth should watch right now. It's by CGP Gray. He's a really famous YouTuber who does really, really good educational videos. And the last, one of the best videos that he did was on the rise of automation. Um, yeah. And, and I think the thesis or the, 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 the biggest premise of, the, of his video was uh, surrounding the idea that our political and social institutions and structures are not ready for this change. And I want to know what your thoughts are on yeah. the relationship of these two things, three things going forward. You know, how, could, yeah. could, is it possible that political institutions uh, could find themselves so desperate, um, you know, that they would try to put the brakes on this progress? And could they? Uh, again, two questions, and we never did get back to James's second question, but we'll get there. We, we, no, 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 no. I want to answer. No, you, your, the, your question will lead us back there. Oh, perfect. So, so the first question: the social and political institutions, as they have been constructed in liberal democracy, are not prepared for what is coming. Period. And by the way, that's why we will soon in the next 15 years be moving into soft or benign forms of authoritarian governance. We are going to slowly begin to do away with what we recognize as the institutions of liberal democracy because they're simply not prepared. Now, one, <laughs> one interesting expression of this this is this is an unfolding process we're, we're talking that this will happen in 20 years 30 years you don't you know wake up and this is this has happened over the weekend we're, we're talking an unfolding temporality here of, of, of maybe a couple decades but one of the interesting dynamics is what we're watching right now with with the current political environment and 
and the, the election of, of Donald Trump. Right. This is what you've seen in the election of Donald Trump. And I'm not trying to make an ideological judgment here. I, I, I'm not interested in that. But what you're seeing or one way of interpreting what you're seeing in the election of, of, of Donald Trump is precisely the last spasm of the of the social and political institutions of liberal democracy trying to that would which means the people within those social and political institutions of liberal democracy people trying to exert some control over a future that they know they don't have a place in right and so donald trump said things to people we will bring back your jobs right we will we will bring back your value we will bring back your dignity we will bring back your middle class uh, living standards we'll we'll do all of that and 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 of course the people who who have as james had said in michigan saw all of that disappear and disappear quite dramatically right they they functioned inside their social and political institutions to try to stop that process. And, and they believe someone who said that he could stop it. Uh, of course he can't. Um, and so, so what we're seeing right now are the, are, are the last gasp of the social and political institutions of liberal democracy attempting to exert control over a technological and automated and, and, and artificial intelligence future that is going to rearrange the entire economic, social, and political reality, right? But this is one of the last ones. This is one of the last gas. Uh, we will. We, and by the way, and by the way, it's not just. It's not just in terms of the election of Donald Trump. We have been seeing this now for at least. 10 years, 20 years in the United States. There's a great bifurcation that's taken place in the United States. On the one hand, there are technological and political and corporate financial and corporate elites who have moved towards an entirely integrated economic and political system of not and not just a, a, a free flow of, of, of information and technology and, and ideas, but of also global governance. There's a type of emergent global governance that has emerged over the last 20, 30 years in, in, around the world. And at the same time, there has there has been the continuation of the sort of reality people like you and I think we live in. Oh well, we live in these 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 liberal democracies, and we have regular elections, and we we vote for people who go to state houses or to the or to the to the government in Washington. They rep they represent our interests. They they vote, and and all of that all of that's gone. All of that is just all of that that you kind of see is kind of an a, kind of a, 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 a sort of historical epiphenomenon. It's just kind of sort of lights flashing here and there that are slowly dying out, right? And and this so this bifurcation, this this rupture of the American political and economic space has been going on for quite a while, but now it's becoming really sharp. It's becoming really intense. People are are waking up. And they're they're realizing they don't have a future, right? And and they're terrified. And so what you saw, what you see right now with the contemporary political anxiety and this sense of fear and the election of Donald Trump is is the last gasp of liberal uh, democratic institutions in the United States. So, Professor, I donated for the first time in my life to the ACL, ACLU. Uh, yeah. Week ago. Should I? get my money back because democracy is dying anyways they're gonna they're gonna fight the good fight they're gonna fight the good fight 
<laughs> boy, how do I? <laughs> the one thing, there, there, there's a kind of a tension in, in the way in which people understand liberal political philosophy, the core ideas of liberal political philosophy, and on the one hand, the way that they are operationalized. For example, what, what the hell am I talking about? There are in, – in, in liberal political philosophy, there are some ideas that people like to believe for good reasons. I'm not – I don't mean that in a pejorative way. That people like to assign to or, or believe are what we would call metaphysical, that they are objective, that they, that they are ideas, they are philosophical ideas that are objectively true and that, and that are related to what it means to be a human being. For example – just to name three, we we tend to think that human beings are are objectively free. That the 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 ability to move freely and and, and move in the pursuit of one's interest without hindrance, artificial hindrance. That that's a kind of an objective quality of life. Humans ought humans are objectively free and and ought to be free in in the widest range possible, considering mutual issues and and you know collective governance. Uh, people are morally equal, right? We, there, there's this idea, and by the way, this is one of the core ideas of liberal democracy, that that, that people are equal. And and by the way, like we said earlier, we were talking about with, with James about this 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 intellect, this elite that had emerged, not equal in the terms of talents and abilities, but morally equal in the sense that in the modern liberal philosophical world, nobody possesses a natural or divine right to rule over another human being. Nobody, no, and let me put it another way, no matter how intellectually superior you may be or physically beautiful you may be or, or regardless of what extraordinary family you may err from or no matter how much you think you may know God, no, no matter what inequalities of talent, ability, capacity, however you want to measure them, might emerge between people, none of those inequalities are ever a legitimate right for why one person rules over another. That's the that's what that's what equality means in the liberal philosophical concept, right? And it's core to democracy. That's why we say one person, one vote, right? Now, I know it doesn't work like that. And then the other idea is natural rights. We believe, as a philosophical idea, as a, as a metaphysical idea, that by virtue of being a human being, right, I possess an inalienable right to my own self-preservation. And in a political context, I possess a right to my own opinion, to associate freedom of association, freedom of religion, petition the government. So, so, so natural rights tend to be, and, and therefore, because I have a natural right, there are some things you as a human being or a government can't do to me without violating a moral law. So, so on the one hand, many people, the heirs of liberal, we are all the heirs of liberal philosophy, regardless of whether we're on the left or the right ideologically. We're the heirs of liberal philosophy. Everybody in this damn country is committed to human freedom, committed to, committed to some sort of notion of equality, and that people ought to possess rights. So, so on the one hand, there is a deep philosophical and metaphysical sort of resonance to these things. Now, on the other hand, and, and this is directly, I'm sorry, it took too long to answer your very, your, your beautiful question, Chris, but this gets now the second part. Aside from those ideas, and aside from our willingness to think in, in our head in some magical way that they're objectively true, at the end of the day, these things are human ideas. They're ideas. 
right? And 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 the, the legal and political dimensions of these things, the ACLU and the Constitution and the protection of natural rights and protection of civil liberties, all of these things at the end of the day, my friend, are, are human inventions or legal documents. The, the Constitution was literally written by, signed by 39 people on the third floor of a Philadelphia bar over a hot summer. It's a piece of paper. It's a piece of paper. And that piece of paper is going to live as long as, as, long as the people who really, and, and, I, and I don't mean this in a cynical way, uh, and forgive me if this sounds pretty dark, but that piece of paper will continue to live as long as it's convenient for the people who really possess and exercise power in this world. And, and probably not for too much longer. James, you got anything to add before while I collect myself and in my in my shattered dreams? Yeah, you know, I, I just sort of wonder um, what that looks like. Like, like, what will what are what are we going to be seeing over a five year, or ten year, or twenty year time span? Yeah. Well, um, so let's so let's talk about that, and then try to 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 talk about the optimistic side of this, there are things that can be done. It's not hopeless. Absolutely. But if you don't know where you are and, and you don't know what's coming, you can't resist. So, so, so the first thing that's coming and, and, and I've been talking to my students about this now for some time, and we've been talking about it in the podcast a little bit too. In fact, we just posted another story on our website today on our Facebook page about it today. There's a, there's a story, and this blows my mind. If, if, if you want any indication of a deep philosophical and emerging practical concrete realization that the traditional way in which we have conceived of liberal democratic capitalism is dying, right? If you want some indication of this thing coming apart and where things are going – I, all you have to do is is open up the the, the Google newsfeed. There is a story, the most extraordinary story I've seen in a long time appeared today, and we posted it. Like I said earlier, over half of Americans, <laughs> and this is America. This is in the this is in the epicenter of liberal democratic capitalism. Raise yourself by the bootstraps. You make your own destiny. Anyone can be. You know this is. This is here, but over 50% of Americans recently surveyed said they would be willing to accept a universal government wage when artificial intelligence and robotics decimate what's left of the middle and working class. What happened to that idea of like, you know, pick yourself up from the bootstraps? What happened to... It's gone. It's gone. I, and this is, this is extraordinary. And, and, and so, first of all, what it looks for, the, the, the concrete answer, James, what this looks like, is in the next 15 years, we will see the, the, the uh, cooperation is the wrong word. We will see the fusion, not the fusion, but the, but the, uh, the increasing codependency of large corporations and technological firms and what we now call the bureaucracies and the administrative capacities of government. We will see the coming together, the fusing of those two processes, 
right, to create a system. It's going to be a, both a corporate and a political system. And, and, and this corporate and political system, they're going to they're gonna figure out some algorithms. They're going to figure out some algorithms based on GNP, consumption, all sorts of sort of macro and microeconomic theories. And, 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 and they're going to they're gonna run some algorithms. They're going to take the best elements of micro and macroeconomic theory, and they're going to figure out what the hell – the basic minimum is that most people need to survive, and they're going to give it to them. And, and this, is, this is what is now being called a universal minimum wage because they're going to have to find some way of keeping these people from burning the place down when they have nothing to do. Right. And so in the concrete way, the, the first powerful thing that you're going to see is, is the end of liberal capitalism. Right. And, and the emergence of this idea that government guarantees to every human being a minimum wage. Right. And 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 so and, and they do that because those people no longer have jobs. They, they've been replaced by artificial intelligence and automation and robotics. Um, and so that's the first concrete thing you're going to see. That's what it's going to look like. Um, and then, of but course, we the, only only see that once the sort of the suffering reaches sort of a critical mass. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That beautifully put. That's right. And 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 what you're what we're seeing right now is this sort of attempt to, uh, on behalf of political and technological elites, corporate elites, to sort of measure right and and sort of take the temperature of people. Where where what is that moment when the suffering becomes critical, right? And and and, and by the way. Damn it! If we had another three or four hours, we could even link this into into what's going to be really fascinating as all this plays out, and that is the sort of the 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 this idea that's sort of floating around in the minds of many people that they have a right to revolution, <laughs> right? I mean, John Locke gave every human being in America a right to revolution. John Locke said. Right. And, and, and Thomas Jefferson just plagiarized Locke when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. He says, when after a long train of abuses, it gets clear to you that your government no longer protects you or advance your interests. You have a natural and a moral right to overthrow the damn government, to burn the damn place down and start again. Right? So 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 there's some really fascinating, like the, fascinating the things going valves, on. Um, yeah, the, the safety valve used to be that. The armies were made up of people who could choose whether or not to obey their orders. Yep. But we're not too far from the armies being made up of robots, and you know a very small number of people are in control of those robots. Yep. Um, and and so I, and, it seems like revolution ceases to be an option. It, uh, it, it, I mean, if it's already not an option now, but yeah, it's well, particularly again, when it's robotic army. It, and 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 we're not far from the robotic army, but even when you think about the militarization of the domestic police force, the militarization of the of 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 the police in a domestic environment, and the willingness to use militarized weapons and tactics in the the repression of domestic protest. I mean, you saw this at DAPL, right? We we just did an episode. We when one of the. Uh, <laughs> Again, the, things are unfolding so rapidly. I find myself saying every every other day, "Oh my God, the most extraordinary thing has just happened in world history." Right? Because the, the, the sort of if, if we were going to do this in a Hegelian sense, the, the consciousness is just unfolding, unfolding rapidly. But but 
one of the if if you look at what happened with with the Dakota Access Pipeline and the protests, we 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 saw the militarization of the police. We absolutely saw that. We've seen that with the with the the troop carriers and the heavy armor and the weapons. Those were all weapons designed for theaters of war. Those were not. Those were not instruments designed for domestic policing, right? But now we see the instruments of war being deployed in, in, the, in the theaters of domestic policing. Now, what should have blown everybody away and what should have prepared everybody for the fact that even if you have a right to revolution, it's no longer possible, is it's not just that we've seen the instruments of war being used in domestic theaters, but at DAPL, the, the, the North Dakota government actually deployed strategies of war, not just the instruments of war, but the strategies of war. They threatened the siege and they established a no-fly zone. Right. And both the siege. Well, first of all, the siege is the oldest strategy of war. Right. If, if, if you want to destroy an enemy and, and you don't want to take immediate moral guilt for just annihilating them, siege them, deny them basic medicine, food, water supplies and, and let them freeze or starve to death. And that's what the North Dakota government threatened to do to the protesters at Standing Rock. They, they were going to create a siege. They were going to deny the protesters. Receive to receive basic medical and humanitarian and 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 material resources, so that should that should terrify everybody. And then they created a no-fly zone to deny uh, the drones of the protesters from from monitoring militarized police activities. And both the siege and the no-fly zone are tactics of war. So you know, as a as yeah, an intermediate, they, uh, they can frame that as. Um, the protesters are making the choice whether or not to continue this. Like they're they're Absolute trying to ball. sort of absolve themselves of yep. of active the, guilt, I guess. Yep. The deep theory behind siege and the no-fly zone is to transfer the guilt of the suffering from the government forces to the protesters themselves. You're, uh, that's brilliantly said. That's absolutely correct, James. <laughs> but yeah. So yeah. Go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. So, so I just want to add, my observation from that um, whole situation was um, seeing how veterans came in and mm -hmm. had a big impact. And, and I'm wondering if you think um, we're witnessing perhaps the resurgence of, of veterans as a political movement. Because um, it seems to me wherever veterans start protesting, the media, the government sort of just backs off. And I wonder if that's just a narrative or what do you think? I, I, think, I think that it's both. I think in, and, and again, this, this speaks to the question you asked earlier. It was a really beautiful question. Are the social and political institutions, what are they going to do? Are they capable of dealing with what's coming? And, and how will they tra be transformed by power? And, and, and we're kind of in a transitionary period. A, a little bit of, I hate to sound so stupid. I, 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 please forgive me. Both answers are kind of right. As you said, and I think you said correctly, we're still in a sort of social and political institutional space, right, where when you have veterans show up to join protests, that people have natural rights to 
too. And, and, and these are legitimate forms of political activity. They're, they're non-traditional forms of political activity, but, but they are ingrained in the entire historical consciousness of Americans. So, so that had, that had an effect. I, I think that that's correct. And, and you could look at that as, as being an example of saying, well, look, the, the system still kind of works here. You have these veterans and they went freely to exercise a political right and to help and assist other people exercising a, a, a civil right. And, and the government, as it should theoretically in the, in the theory of liberal democracy, listened to that, backed down, and so power was checked by the people. Right. That's the kind of way that it could be interpreted. And, and, and I don't think it would be incorrect to interpret that as happening in some way. Okay. Now, 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 how long government will tolerate that for how much longer is a good question, right? And, and so I, I think if I understand how you use the word narrative, you know, was this just a strategy? Did they sort of calculate that in this immediate moment with all of this attention, you know, the best thing to do is just sort of, sort of back off let let let's let's make the army corps of engineers deny the access let's let's not have a spectacle here and 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 then but ultimately do what they're going to do right um i so the the, the real question is what was that kind of a narrative in terms of a broader strategy and of course ultimately in the big scheme of things if the protesters, the military veterans as protesters really emerged and there was really a potential for confrontation, how much would the government tolerate, right? And, 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 my, and my fear is, and my, my suspicion and my fear is, is that, that it was in the interest of the government to, to back down on this. Right. But where there will be situations where it's in the interest of the government to maintain order or to maintain public order or to maintain public safety, I, I think that you can be, be pretty damn sure that the exercise of force and deadly force will be swift and overwhelming. So, so Professor, um, I want to ask you and I want to preface the following question by saying that this is an ideological show. So don't hold back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, so the question goes, in the next four years, out of the three, yep. out of these next possible scenarios, which one is more likely? Number one, <laughs> oh, a war, a prediction show. <laughs> a shooting yep. war with China, a depression, or Donald Trump is going to make America great again? A depression. Yeah. There will be no shooting war with China. That's a joke. That's that's a narrative. Yeah, that's an absolute narrative. There there will be no shooting war with China. Period. What about race violence? Uh, yeah, something like a race war. How, how much time do we have? However, the time you have, I, I'm willing Gosh. to sit here all day. I'm I'm with my idol here. This is great. No, no, no. I'll try to keep this brief. Mm-hmm. But we have to get back to the to how we talk about the affirmative resistance, the positive resistance to all this. We can't let that go. Okay. But real quick to answer your question, 
And and by the way, we 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 just recently talked about this in, in a podcast right after the election, and, and the podcast was called "Liberal Philosophy Tolerance and Where Do We Go From Here?" And and forgive me for speaking about some heavy and what may sound as bleak things, but but by the but by the way, actually, this is why it's so damn important that and, and forgive me for sounding like this I, I feel stupid speaking like this but this is why political philosophy is so damn important and by the way this is why people are hungry for it because we don't teach political philosophy anymore we teach political science and, and, and in some ways it's a joke and 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 philosophy in universities is analytical philosophy it's logical positivism and it's boring as hell but we don't teach political philosophy and this is what beginning with plato and the whole 2500 year history of political philosophy this is what political philosophy does and the fact that we don't teach it anymore is really a great crisis but so so let me speak to 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 the, your question because we're we're in potentially for some very deep suffering because Either we never understood the meaning of tolerance, or if we did understand it, we forgot it. And both of those factors are directly related to your question. What, is something like a, a racial violence possible, uh, ethnic violence possible, you know, violence exercised against minorities, racial minorities, religious minorities, even gendered minorities? Is it possible? And and the, the simple and brutal answer is yes. Yes. And, and I'll tell you why. Again, liberal political philosophy <laughs> – and I, I know I keep turning to this, but what we call liberal political philosophy was born in hatred. What, what, the, the, the origin of the philosophical idea of tolerance was born out of exhaustion of going to funerals and hatred. The idea that we have a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multicultural society that kind of functions in the United States, and there's this been this slow but very uneven and at times quite vicious, but this slow emergence of a greater understanding and respect for other people, right? Sort of a, a, plura, a pluralism of, of multi religions and, 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 and ethnicities and racial backgrounds and religious backgrounds. This, what we see in America, this is the product of an extraordinary amount of historical hatred, right? Liberalism emerges, right? The fact, the fact that, the fact that I look at you, Chris, or I look at you, James, and I say to you, I really don't like you. I have a long history of reasons why I don't like you. And again, those reasons can be religious, they can be cultural, they can be racial, it doesn't matter, right? But 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 it, it's built on this sense that that there's this extraordinary tension 
between what God is or ethnicities, between human beings. And there's a long history of people willing to to exercise violence in the expression of those hatreds, right? Religious civil wars, racial wars, cultural wars, for God's sake, right? And so the long history of of Western European society, uh, all the way from the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, is kind of built on this extraordinary dislike, it's such an ugly word, this extraordinary dislike. And historically, people were willing to exercise violence in, in the pursuit of that dislike. And, and what that did was create war. It created especially religious war, right? I mean, the, the great religious wars between the Catholics and the Protestants that begin in the early 1600s and rage all through the 1600s, all the way into the early 1700s, and then the great wars of nationalism between France and England and the Habsburg Empire that rage from the 1700s to the 1800s, right? There's this extraordinary history of violence and dislike. And liberalism, what we call liberalism, this idea that I recognize you as somebody that I will live next to even though I don't like, right? This, this idea of liberalism emerges out of that. It, it emerges out of this idea that, that, that I don't like you. I have my reasons, whatever they are. Right in the past, my ancestors have exercised those 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 dislikes with violence, but that has created that just created war. That just created violence and counterviolence, and the counterviolence created civil war, and the civil war created anarchy, and 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 we had funerals. And as 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 intense and bleak as this is, liberalism emerges out of that dislike. Tolerance is a very, very difficult thing. Tolerance exists because people don't like each other. Tolerance doesn't exist because one day everybody woke up and they just said, hey, I, I love you. Let's just all get along. Right. Tolerance is tolerance isn't unity. Unity is unity. If you had unity, you wouldn't need tolerance, right? If you had, if you had love, if, if everybody loved each other, you wouldn't need tolerance. If everybody was unified, you wouldn't need tolerance. If everybody liked each other, if everybody respected each other at these really deep core philosophical or religious or ethnic levels, you wouldn't need tolerance. Tolerance as a philosophical and cultural process exists because those things don't exist. So tolerance is this really heavy thing. And, 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 and it basically, it's built on four principles. I, I, I dislike you very much. I have historical reasons for doing so. I am in a position, I, if I choose, to exercise violence, to express my dislike. But for I withhold that violence and I res- and I see you as a person who is worthy, uh, not worthy, but at least possesses a natural right to exist. And if we're not going to spend the rest of our lives going to funerals, burying our children, you and I got to get along right now. Again, looping all this stuff back to what we've been talking about from the very first moment of this show. What has helped tolerance? What helped the emergence of, of social and, 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 and political institutions of liberal democracy was economic opportunity, right? Was economic opportunity. And as long as there was enough economic opportunity, as, as long as there were 3,000 miles of open land to go and conquer, as long as, as long as there were opportunities for people to, to raise their families and put their kids through college, as long as there was opportunity, 
tolerance was easier. And this is the key. It was economic. As, as long as there was something like a working and a middle class, they could aspire to their little vulgar dreams. They could consume their little their, their TVs and maybe have a little vacation. Everybody kind of got along. In a, in a strange way, except, of course, for a civil war and for the, for the you know, the civil rights movement and the integration issues. I mean, you know, notwithstanding those episodic events, people, economic opportunity allowed people to get along, right? And so, and so now put these things together, right? As the middle class collapses, as hundreds of millions of people in this country realize they don't have an economic future anymore – Right. As the sort of the sort of economic foundation that made the very difficult choice of tolerance possible as that erodes. Now you see the reemergence of hate. Right. It's because it's it's never really gone away. Right. And, and again, I'm not happy about that. I'm not celebrating that. No doubt there should be expanding domains of, of understanding and care for other human beings. Absolutely. Right. But but. A lot of that never went away. And now that the economic futures of people and the economic foundations of people have collapsed, you see the sort of return of this of this sort of raw existential <sighs> dislike. Angst. 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 Let me ask you this. So what is what can I do as an individual um, in the next four years to prevent myself from ending up in a gas chamber? Yeah. Wow. Well, geez. Um, first of all, what you're doing right now is the right beginning. You and James are in control of some extraordinarily powerful and socially and politically transformative technology. You are in control of a type of technology and information systems that, one, people use. Now, of course, they predominantly use it for gaming and for entertainment, but, but there's no reason why those things can't be used for educational or transformative purposes, right? So, so you are already doing it. You're already sort of creating and developing the, the extraordinarily powerful and transformative, especially in terms of the informational and educational dynamics of human society, right? And, and, and by the way, it, it's, it's almost very powerful. If, if you wanted to talk about a resistance to power, you are the resistance to power, and not, and not just in the terms of the fact that you possess and, and build this technology, but in this very fascinating, almost postmodern way, the, all of the people who you would need to talk to, all of those people that Machiavelli and, and the corporate and the technological elites call the vulgar, all those masses, they're using your products, right? They're, in a weird way, they're already tapped into the system, the, the information and the disruptive information the transmission system. They're, already, they're, they're doing it on the gaming. This is, you know, and, and so they're, 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 they're kind of a built-in audience. And so that's the first thing. Recognize what you have, right? And recognize the way that the, the technology that you have is already being used by God, Bill, probably billions of people. And then to recognize and, and identify ways in which you can bend that technology to become a sort of vehicle for the trans, for the transmission of very disrupt, very 
important information and disruptive and trans- transformational information about about social and political reality, about about the possibility of conceiving of new forms of social and political association. And, and again, I, I, I don't mean to be sort of naive about this. I'm, I am dead serious. And, and this gets back to something James said earlier. The core philosophical ideas of liberalism that we have inherited and that built the social, political, and economic institutions of the last 500 years of world history are dying. They're dying. The philosophical ideas are collapsing. And as soon as the philosophical ideas collapse, whatever legal expressions or constitutional expressions, right, that are on paper, those will also collapse. And and so so what is what is literally necessary is the beginning of a a, a sort of a reimagination of what political philosophy is. What, and, and, and you and I were talking yesterday about an alternative ethics. How do we begin to conceive of a postmodern, post-liberal conception of human mind, of human consciousness, of human relationships? And how does that conception create an alternative ethics? How do we conceive our responsibility to each other? And what do the political institutions of that shared responsibility look like? That is critical, and, and, and it can be done. It, it, there's no reason it can't be done, right? Uh, I mean, you know, when the Renaissance emerged, I mean, my God, the last thing divine right monarchs and feudal aristocrats ever thought in the world what happened at the end of the 1400s and the early 1500s was liberalism, for God's sakes. <laughs> they never thought the peasants would be free, the peasants would revolt, the peasants would have property in their minds and body and build empires. <laughs> I mean, if, if you were a feudal aristocrat or a divine right monarch living at the age of the feudal reality, you would have said to yourself, well, this is it. Nothing... <laughs> You know, I can't imagine alternative notions of social, economic, and political relations. Um, so we're kind of there, and, and we need to do it. it. It's it's the single most pressing purpose of humanity right now. And I, I it's funny you mentioned that. I actually have imagined uh, a, a potential solution through virtual reality. So yep. The question of the question of what are people going to do once they have basic yep. income? You know, what are they going to do yeah. with all that time? And I yeah. predict, or I, I, I propose that, we, that and I, honestly, I, whether I propose it or not, it's going to happen. But I, what I think is going to happen is that in the next 15 years, virtual reality is going to become symbiotic with reality. And, mm-hmm. and people will be able to go inside VR, like a, like a physical space, more of a metaphysical space, and they will be able to do the jobs that, um, and create value for each other where AI cannot. Um, yep. So I, you know, I imagine places where counseling is important, therapy is important. Yep. Um, yeah, and and and, and a, a whole new set of jobs that I couldn't even imagine right now. But but I, but I, I would disagree that AI can't do those things. I think as soon as you have people doing them in virtual reality, that's a very easy way to collect data on how it's done, and that's the first step <laughs> to automating it. <laughs> but if humans are, I, I gotta disagree. You terrify me, James. <laughs> James is 
Humans are emotional animals, James, and I bet you I can create a service on that in that marketplace um, that will compete with the AI. It won't be better, but it will compete because you can sell people the the notion, the emotion of being able to talk to another human being. That will always carry value. I think. James, you got cut off. But I could make an AI that convinces people. At some point, someone an AI that convinces people that it is human. I, I think it, 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 we won't be able to tell. You know, there, there won't be. There won't be a clear line there. What about so 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 that brings up a good question. What do you think about in, in terms of AI? Um, so there's there's this uh, um, a philosopher that Dan Carlin brought him uh, brought in his podcast a little while ago. I think his name is James Burke, and what he predicts, what he thinks is going to happen, is that AI is going to so so Facebook and all and Google have these algorithms that are constantly figuring out who you are, what you like. Right. And, and and so what's gonna happen is that these algorithms are gonna get better and better and better and better. And you know, I'm honestly of the opinion that one day these these AI um, will create clones of you that will be able to make predictions. Um, uh, we'll say, they'll say, oh, it looks like uh, Nick Dungy would be 90% likely to vote for this thing. And what would happen is you would outsource your political will um, predetermined political will to AI, because no, no, there's no way a human, one single human being or, or a regular person, the vulgar, you, uh, you say, uh, yep. would be able to really wrap their minds around the the complexities. Like I went to go vote the other day, and I was like, what am I doing here? What am I? Yep. What is? What is it? <laughs> this? Is yeah. I don't understand what's going on. I don't know what I'm voting for. Right. You know, and so right. And so you see a world where you know AI could facilitate governance or what is your take on the role or the relationship between ai and government going forward well i want to go back and and respond to something that we were talking about earlier and then loop back to this because it's really it's critically important i i i I mean this literally i'm just so fascinated by what you guys do I, i i'm just just blows my mind what you guys do and the potential for it in the context of political philosophy and and one thing I want to say is not only keep doing what you're doing, but if virtual reality has a role to play in what might be an emerging new social and political philosophy, it's, it's the fact that you can, you can kind of create it and simulate it in a weird way. Like, like you, could, you could build a virtual reality construct and you could give it certain philosophical ideas and and purposes and values and kind of game it and so you could actually test what economic and social and political theories might look like right and and you could live them and, and that's that's that just blows my mind that that you could sort of test these things out before you have to do them in the real world <laughs> you know because in the real world it's very messy you there's a lot of trial and error and mostly error and a lot of suffering from the error and so i i think virtual reality can can play a really positive and constructive role in in the the articulating the testing and the sort of thinking deeply about what new philosophical ideas about what human beings are, what relationships are, and what institutions look like. I mean, for goodness sake, if you can do that with the gaming world, why can't you do that with the political philosophy world? 
right? It, it, perhaps I'm missing something. So, so that's the first thing. You know, the, this technology is 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 capable of doing that. Um, now, getting back. <laughs> I have to answer your other question before we get to this question, because it's really important. And I've been thinking a lot about this, and I knew this would come up, and I I really want to talk about it. You had said a few minutes ago, what will people do when they don't have work in the way that we have understood the idea and the experience and the valuation of work? And this is critical. This is, and 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 back. In fact, this is probably another flashpoint of crisis in a deep psychological and philosophical way. And I think it's a very there's a very profound misunderstanding or a very profound naivete happening right now. The standard way of looking at this, the, the simple sort of standard knee jerk way of thinking about this. Well, what would people do if if people didn't have to go to work? If they had a universal wage, what would they do? And people say. Oh, they would they they would have all that time to be creative. They would have all that time to think about different ways of being creative or different ways of thinking or right. And and by the way, that I, I think that's correct in an abstract sense. But the problem is, is you have to train, you have to educate people from a very young age to think of their of the of the purpose of their life in certain specific ways, right? In 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 modern liberal democratic capitalism, you and I are raised to be producers and to be consumers, right? We, we are, we, first of all, we're raised to be consumers because that's our understanding of happiness. Happiness is pleasure. The more you consume, the higher rates of pleasure. Okay, well, how do you sustain that? You go to college, you make a lot of money, and you buy more stuff to feel more pleasure. That's why we think, stupidly, George Clooney must be the happiest person on, on planet Earth, Right now, now that's 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 an entire existential sort of construct. It's, 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 a, it's a construct of consciousness. It's a it's it's an entire modality of mind and habituation of body and time space experience. Right. You just you just don't you don't just stop people from working and then say, oh, they're just going to go off and be creative. They don't know how to be creative. They don't know how to think creatively. They, they don't understand what it means to think of mind as an aesthetic experience rather than some rational experience acquiring wealth to consume and feel pleasure. So this is this is huge, and and therefore and therefore the 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 movement the, the creation of a new type of philosophy that begins in this idea that the meaning and the purpose of human consciousness and human life has to be something aesthetic. It has to be something creative and aesthetic, rather than productive and consuming in terms of physical notions of pleasure. That's so critical. And, and, and by the way, we know, we know right now we have small, it's kind of small, but it's, it's, it's certainly a type of evidence of what happens to people when they don't have to work anymore. A lot of people who, who, who retire, right, die soon after retirement, <laughs> Right? They, they, they spend their whole life thinking, boy, I can't, I can't wait to not have to work anymore and produce and consume. Right. I can't wait to retire. I'm going to have all this time. I'm going to do all these things. And what happens actually, because we've never taught people how to think of their consciousness and their time and their purpose in any other way than that, because that's a philosophical system that many people die soon after retirement because 
they're just bored. They, their mind starts working. They don't function well. They have high rates of anxiety, right? And people who win the lottery, all of a sudden you, you have so much damn money, which is a kind of a, the other side of a universal wealth, right? You've got all this money. You don't have to do anything anymore. And so the boredom sets in, the loss of purpose, the, the sort of loss of direction, and, of course, all sorts of terrible things happen. So, so one of the things that has to take place as this new reality is built is the education and the constructing of consciousness that enables people to see their mind, to see their bodies differently, fundamentally differently. Can I, can I say, um, I, I think, so, so my takeaway from this is um, noticing that there is a lot of people who drive purpose in their life from things like fear. Um, because it makes, because it works, because the amygdala in the brain is the flight mechanism and it overrides the prefrontal cortex. So once the amygdala is triggered, you know, you, you don't, you don't have that cognitive ability to think. So my thinking is, we need to come up with real boogeyman to scare the shit out of humanity into finding a purpose that is worth pursuing, like the pursuit of the ends of the universe, like making sure we don't, ex- sur- like we survived the next uh, volcano explosion or asteroid collision or something. Uh, yeah, it, I, it sounds nefarious. It sounds horrible to say, but like it's oh. kind of Machiavellian. Too, it's 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 this human thing that we can harness for good or not. Well, I, I'm I'm fascinated by this question as this question relates to a metaphysical and post-metaphysical sort of analysis. Because on the one hand, and, and this is the way it was in Turkey, and, and, and your, your cite, citing of Machiavelli is correct. And, and there, there are two, with Machiavelli, Hobbes, and Locke, and the entire modern political construct, philosophical construct, there are two really powerful psychological and, and, and sort of bio-existential drives. There is the fear and there's the desire to acquire. And by the way, that's, that's what America is, right? Control fear, create a space to acquire. Okay. And so, and, and, and so fear has been one of the dominant philosophical ideas from the 1500s to the contemporary age. And, and, and what happened, what has happened is, is that the philosophical idea of fear be- emerged parallel and in tandem with the emergence of science and the normative social and medical sciences and the tree and, and the looking at the human body and the mind as a bioscientific thing that had that had sort of objective drives like like you said right the, we you know the, the amygdala has got this sort of lizard brain it's core once there's fear it overruns everything and and and, and, and so there's this sort of combination Right of a of a sort of a normative medical scientific explanation of the human, right? It's got the brain. The brain's got these parts. The parts do these things, and this philosophical idea of fear. And those two things have kind of come together and created a very strong sort of evolutionary slash philosophical account of what the hell has been going on, right? Which has, by the way, been very powerful because science is the predominant way of interpreting these things, and now medical science and all of that. Um, but if you were to step back and, and take a Nietzschean and Foucaultian point of view, if you were to take a postmodern point of view and, and you would sort of see 
all of these ideas as contained in human language, human language as a, an invention, and not just an invention of description, but also an exercise of power, and realize the, 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 the very formative ways in which ideas and language and, and certain material constructs can come to shape a consciousness, can come to shape a body. Right, and it, there's something. If, if there is anything that's very power, kind of compelling about the emergence of postmodern uh, philosophy and political philosophy, it's its willingness to see the mind and the body as a type of text. Right, that that there aren't necessarily metaphysical or objective things. That those things are descriptions. Now they're very powerful and 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 and, and forms of description, and and they they operate as a type of power. Right, so they become they, they they become and they operate in a way that looks very determinative, right, in the deterministic sort of sense. But really, they're they're narratives. They're they're stories about mind, about body, about fear, about all of that. And and one of the things that I do in my own private my own research in the postmodern area is is to sort of start thinking about ways of thinking about how we articulate different narratives that move us away from some of the deterministic natural science and biomedical narratives uh, and the way those have been got caught up with certain philosophical ideas about desire or, or about, about fear or about gender. And um, so I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what the objective status of fear as a motivating factor in human life really is. Do you understand what I'm saying? Can you expand a bit more? Yeah, well, I wonder how much what we now identify as an objective condition to human life called fear really is. Right? I'm, I'm not convinced about the metaphysics of it. I'm not convinced about the objective status of it. I tend to see it more as a type of narrative. Right? And, and it's interesting, too, because if, if you look back, uh, sort of a discursive narrative, because even if you look back in history, prior to the Renaissance, prior to this emergence of this idea of fear as the sort of bio-neurological and philosophical component of human nature. I, I suppose people were afraid. People were afraid in feudal times. People were afraid in the Greek and Roman times. I suppose that's true. Life was always difficult. Uh, life was, was, was kind of it was terrifying in some ways because, you know, if you were a, a peasant or a feudal serf, um, life was very difficult. Uh, and I'm sure fear played a component. But if you if you look back at the discourses prior to the Renaissance, if you, if you look at, back at the at, at Greek and Roman literature and Greek and Roman philosophy, now of course a lot of it wasn't about common people, of course. So you, you know the the metric is you know we don't have a good sample size. But but if you look at this literature, and even if you go back to the Homeric Greeks, even the pre-metaphysical Greeks. Um, the, the, the Greeks of Homer, all the way up to the emergence of Socrates, you don't see fear a lot in any of the philosophy. You don't see fear in, in the political philosophy. You don't see fear in the philosophy. You don't see it come up in the cultural and anthropological studies of cultures. It doesn't exist. I mean, I'm sure people at some level feared, right? 
but you didn't see it as a philosophical, bio-neurological, bio-physiological constellation. It just didn't exist. The Stoics didn't talk about fear. In fact, in fact, the, in, 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 all of Stoic philosophy is a philosophy designed to help you confront the existential kind of difficulties and challenges of life heroically with some clarity, right? So it was about overcoming fear, right? Fear, fear wasn't something that should motivate you. Fear is something that you should rationally sort of deal with and, and, and overcome. So how do you break away from having fear be used on you as a tool of control by someone else? Yeah. See, be, okay. I love you so damn much. See this, this, this is now what we're talking about, right? This is the importance of alternative modes of political philosophy. And I was telling you yesterday, I, I, I teach a class on tragedy and there are many reasons why I teach a class on tragedy. But one of the reasons I teach a class on tragedy is to help equip and enable people who have been raised in this liberal philosophy of fear and in some ways of marginalization and, and naming and marginalization and, and in some ways have, have been sort of abused and coerced in these processes and in ways and then therefore exhibit very deep existential notions of fear, right? How to to see those ideas that have created the fear, those ideas that have been used to label their IQ, label their mental health, labor their, their, their sort of normality or abnormality, to begin the process of identifying those ideas as ideas, just as ideas, very powerful to be sure, but just as ideas, and that you can, you can conceive of language and human mind in alternative ways. Right? And in fact, there are very important, very powerful models of, of doing that. And if you can equip yourself with an alternative model of what language is, of what power is, about how consciousness comes into existence, how it opens into a shared relationship of being formed by ideas that really aren't metaphysically or objectively true, but are just human inventions and exercises of power, then you can begin the process of disentangling yourself from that. And therefore, you can begin the process of lowering your fear, or at least equipping yourself with the strength, the emotional strength and the mental clarity to confront what terrifies you. So you can, so you can sort of resist it or you can recreate your own reality. And I mean that literally, I don't mean that in a, in a superficial way. So you can begin the process of articulating in an alternative way, what the hell your life means, who the hell you are, what you want your life to be, how you want to love, how you want to be friends, how, how you want to conduct yourself. Most people conduct themselves in, 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 in fields of fear. And, and, and in some ways it's been constructed that way to do that to them. Right. Um, and, and so so one of the most important things that we can do now is to deconstruct the philosophy and the biodynamics of fear so people can create some real emotional strength, develop some intellectual clarity and potentially intellectual creativity. So they're not pushed around by ideas they don't understand and ideas that have marginalized them and coerced them. And so they can begin to be sort of autonomous in limited ways and start to bend their own lives in ways that are more affirming and fulfilling for them. James, do you have anything to follow up before I throw Professor Dungy a question out of left field? 
Um, no, go, go ahead. Uh, so speaking of, <laughs> I think we lost. I'm sorry, James. <laughs> I think I've bored him to death. <laughs> no, he's taking notes. He's probably taking notes there. Uh, so, uh, Professor, here's a question, a, a bit of a, a left field, and in, 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 in sort of in line with fear. Um, what do you think will happen? Um, what are your thoughts? What are your predictions? Um, what do you think will happen the day the virtual reality headset technology becomes so good that millions of people all over the world are going to put it on, they're going to take it off, put it on, take it off, put it on, take it off, and they're going to realize, holy shit, I can't tell the difference between reality and virtual reality. What What do you think, you know, what, what's going to happen? What would happen? In one, in one weird way, I can't wait for that day because what it will do, I think, and, and perhaps I'm naive and I don't know enough about it, but I'm just, you ask me and I'm going to give you my naive, perhaps stupid answer. But I'm going to give you an answer that sort of aligns with how I view consciousness as an aesthetic experience from a postmodern point of view. What I think it's going to do when, when, when you put that on and you can no longer distinguish the difference between what the hell you are seeing, experiencing and what used to be out there. I think it's going to illuminate to human beings how artificially constructed all of this really is. See, we're running around this place that we call reality. We think it's effing reality. We think it's concrete. We think it's got this time spent dimension. We think it coheres with some objective sort of geometry of the universe, right? With, with its gravity and its, 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 its light waves. We, we, we think this has a real concrete objective. And in some ways it does. There's a certain sort of dimensional experience here. I get it, right? But, but we are obsessed. We are fully, fully committed and obsessed with a sort of concrete objective physicality of ourselves, a truth about ourselves, right? That we don't see, we don't see our we don't see our mind as something constructed by language. We don't see our bodies. We don't see our gender. We don't see any of these things as the effects of linguistic power and a sort of material conditioning, because we think that we are objectively free. We think we we think that there's you know and this this is what this is what Descartes said. We said cogito ergo sum. I think therefore I am right. There's something objectively true about Nick Dungy, right? You know, if 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 you're a member of one of the great theologies. You think there's something objectively true because God made you, right? So you're unique. You're objectively true in this time space. If, if you're committed to platonic philosophy, you think you are objectively true because you have reason. And reason is a, spe- is a, unique, a special faculty unique to human beings that connects them to the pure ideas, the objective true ideas, right? So, so, so we think there's something real happening here in a really concrete way and also that what's happening here is connected to an objective truth god or pure ideas or now science right there's some there's some biomedical dimensions of science about the true true mental health the true iq the true true uh physical health right but but what virtual reality is going to do once once you can experience something right now that you can't distinguish between what's inside the headset and outside that's going to, that's going to illuminate to you in a weird way, how artificial this is, right? It can be, it can be, it can be reconstituted aesthetically. Now in this case, through technology and through aesthetics, right? But it can be replicated. And if it can be replicated, 
right? If, 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 if the experience of your mind, the experience of your consciousness, the movement in, in time, space, whatever, whatever time, space and virtual reality is and, and the feeling uh, and the self-awareness of your own consciousness, if that can be sort of artificially created at such a sophisticated level that you can't distinguish that from anything else, it shows you right? How flexible time space is. It shows you how, how sort of artificial and fluid and decentered your own mind is. It's really powerful. It's an extraordinarily powerful thing because if you can get that in your head, right? And, and see, th this is a great paradox about, about a critique of metaphysics. If you can get into your head that there is nothing objectively true about your consciousness, about your mind, about the noumenal content in your mind and the way it's cohering with some objective truth, if you can liberate yourself from that, then anything becomes possible, right? And then once anything becomes possible, you open, and, and especially with certain technological capacities, but if you can find a way to fuse certain technological capacities with high levels of aesthetics and creativity, anything becomes possible. You can fabricate anything you want. And by the way, from the post-metaphysical point of view, their argument, if you read Foucault, Foucault's argument is that your consciousness is already a fabrication, right? Your, what you think of your own consciousness and the way you conceive of your body and, and the fear and the amygdala and all the institutional relationships, that's a fabrication. That's an effect of power of a, ling of, of, of a type of language sort of reinforced by physical and institutional material associations. So I, I, I first of all, I can't wait for that day. That's going to that's gonna be fascinating because it's going to illuminate the sort of fluidity of all of this and literally the fluidity of your own mind and the fact that you have this extraordinary fluidity of mind with no center. Yeah, I think it, it's... It's really interesting because VR, when I first got really interested in it, brings up a few questions. You know, how how do you tell the difference between if you're living in a simulation or if, if you're, you know, if it's simulated reality or real or actual reality? Um, you know, how how do we decide how to design our experiences if we have yep. you know complete control over those experiences? Um, and and as I was listening to your podcast, it it sort of became obvious that you know it's not limited to VR those questions right. so, so yeah. it's it's it, it brings to your attention these questions and then you think well the same thing is true of, of sort of the what i consider to be my base reality absolutely um, beautiful perfect that's right yeah so it's i'm i, I I'm, I'm gonna... so it, it's, I, I, I think it will just draw attention no, go ahead. Um, oh, I was just going to say that, um, you know, I think especially as we're designing experiences to point out these questions, um, it'll be extra obvious once, once they're being, you know, sort of consumed through VR. See, that's the resistance. Everybody, we were talking about this yesterday, Chris. I, I'm getting emails from all around the world, people listening to the podcast, and they say, okay, we get it. What can we do? Right. And, and you were asking this. We were talking about this. This is you know what to do. As, as James just beautifully said, you can rate. First of all, VR helps you see the fluidity of consciousness and the and the sort of the, the flexibility of the time space continuum and the concrete continuum, what you think of all of that. And then you can start raising questions inside of that. And, and that will become sites of resistance to the more bleaker and heavier authoritarian dimensions that are unfolding in the collapse of the liberal democratic space. 
and and the fact that that you are you are in control of the technology that people are already using right right you don't you don't you don't have you know in the french revolution they had to go down to the to the slums and they had to motivate everybody <laughs> everybody's already connected <laughs> you, know, you just have to do it you just have to provide that disruptive and transformative information it's it's really brilliant what you guys are doing and it's right and these and and these questions are are at the very core philosophical in in the broadest sense of that term I have I have another question out of left field, and, and this one comes from uh, I had a, I had an experience with um, uh, hanging out at Singularity University uh, a year ago, and um, I remember Rick Kurzweil standing up on stage and saying how he's the director of uh, technology at Google, I think, and he's talking about how in their basement or in their research labs, I call it the basement, that they are um, working on a new form of um, cort uh, a neocortex, a new form of neocortex. Basically yeah. what it would be, it would be an apparatus that's put on your forehead or somewhere, and it would enhance your cognitive capacity by a thousand percent. This, I, I, we're in the world where like, I can't discount anything as, not, as yep. far too far-fetched anymore. Yep. <laughs> And so what would happen in like 20 years if someone shows up yep. and they're a thousand times smarter than any human that's yep. ever existed? It's already happening. It's already happening. What, where is it happening right now? Well, I, I, well, it's happening in the labs. Um, there, there's, a, there's a very in, interesting and disturbing field of transhumanism, right? That there's a whole field of transhumanism where they are – editing the genes they are reprogramming the genes and and it, it look it's very likely that in the next 40 years you're going to see a bifurcation in the human species do you see yourself and speaking of genetic genetically modifying yourself and crispr and genetic and synthetic biology um if right. the possibility came up would you give yourself another 500 years of life <laughs> i don't think so no Imagine if no. you could see. We could go to Mars yeah. and have Burning Man on Mars. It'd be great. I, I, I can't imagine a week without my dog. Ah, what if we can so dog and bring him along? Yeah, I'm. I'm. You know, I'm really happy right now. <laughs> well, no, no worries, Professor. I'll do that for you. That, that's, that's yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't think people want Professor Dendry around another 500 years. For God's sake. <laughs> Let 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 new things emerge. <laughs> yeah, I think it's fascinating because people will. will that will be another event um, if it ever comes. Yep. Where yeah. We'll start questioning what it is to be alive and what it is to be <laughs> when all of a sudden. And, and and by the way, that's political philosophy. Uh huh. This is why it's that, important to have you in this yep. community because it's, the, the the whole origin of political philosophy begins with Plato. What what does it mean to be a human being and to live well? What have you found out so far? What can you share with us? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that would have to be another episode, my friend. It would be. So I yeah. guess we're going to bring things down to a close. Any last couple questions, James, for Professor Dungey? Um, 
So, so just one sort of quick, quick question. If, if there's one um, sort of piece of advice for people who are building these technologies and building these experiences for, for other people um, of how to, how, of how to decide what, what to focus on and what to look at, um, what, what, what piece of advice or, or book or, or article would you suggest they, they read? I would suggest that everybody read first Nietzsche's on the genealogy of morals, understand what Nietzsche is arguing, and then read Foucault's Discipline and Punish. And then, and then, um, yeah, I'll stop at that. Because what that will provide is an alternative perspective on language and power and consciousness that helps move them away from the view, the, the, the modern liberal view of reason, reason's relationship to technology and what you do with it. And it, therefore, it might provide the beginning of an exit out of this crisis. Awesome. I'm going to make sure I add those in the show notes. So, Professor Dungey, I'm going to ask one last question. Um, mm-hmm. What are your big, we're going to leave it with this. What are your biggest fears? And what are your biggest hopes for the future? <laughs> um, my biggest fear. Um, not dying before my dog. Or, or, yeah, my, my, my biggest fear is, 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 is the loss of this feeling and experience of consciousness. I'm, I'm so absolutely blown away by consciousness and the fact that I'm in consciousness in some, whatever that means. And I'm experiencing it and I have this extraordinary love for things and and I, I if I, I suppose if I fear something but but I don't fear that because I, I understand its nature and and when it goes it goes but I suppose on a su- on a superficial level I know that's not what you meant but I I I, I fear not seeing my family and my dog you know and my hopes um And I tell this to my students every day, and, and they're tired of me telling it to them. My hope for people is that they find the emotional courage and the intellectual clarity to understand what ideas have done to them, to learn how to disentangle themselves from that so they can stop being abused and they can stop living in fear and they can stop living in self-hatred and resentment, and they begin the process of, of, of sort of giving their life meaning and some purpose and some beauty, you know, to, make, to make beauty out of this chaos for themselves, and, and not to feel the need to have to justify or explain that to a, another human being. It's an aesthetic experience. Professor Dungey, you, I've conclusively concluded you are a scholar and gentleman of virtual <laughs> How can people stay in touch? How can people follow up what you're doing? Anything coming up that people should look up for? Yeah, well, thank you for asking. If anybody is interested in in these types of discussions, not necessarily the tech-heavy part of it, but 
we do um, a weekly, sometimes bi-weekly podcast um, called Deeper Dive. And you can find it on iTunes or you can find it at our official website, DungyState.com. DungyState is one word, DungyState.com. And the whole catalog of the podcasts are there. And the podcasts are a sort of a version of what we do. What we do is we, we look at current economic or social or political events and we discuss them in the context of their deeper historical and philosophical origins and implications. So it's not ideological. There's no left-right mudslinging or anything like that. We, we just try to sort of identify the origins of these, these events and the philosophical dynamics behind them and try to chart where they're going. So, so I, I invite and encourage all of your listeners to check out our, our podcast and also, we have just started a YouTube channel. We're, we're, we're going to start filming them, we're, so we're very excited about that. And you can find the, us on YouTube at Dungy State University, YouTube, and at Twitter, at URDSU. Sweet. I will make sure all the links are in the show notes. Uh, yeah, Professor Dungy, just wanted to add your podcast is amazing. Whoever's doubting, listening, you better download now because it <laughs> You know, what I, what I found myself struggling with it after the Trump election was, you know, being filled with all this emotion, this raw emotion, yep. and, I, and I'm so glad I was able to have a grown-up come by and talk yeah. to about what's going on. I'm so happy you were able to join us. And I, I don't mean this as, as, as like a, a, a sort of superficial evasion. There's nothing, and I mean this really sincerely, there's nothing particularly unique or interesting that I bring to the conversation. This is really what political philosophy is. This, this is, this is political philosophy. And, and it, and, and it's essential. So necessary. It's so, yeah. Uh, well, once again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Oh, it's been an honor. I, I am so excited and, and I, it's a gift. Both of you are a gift and, and just so grateful.